We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. Here with me today are... Uh, this is Andrew again. We are totally not doing a second intro because of anything or nothing at all. <laughs> all professional. And this is Anni Blue Facili Online, and I'm just here for the ride, as always. Right, you're never the cause or instigator of anything that happens in these. We're, we're professionals. <laughs> Absolutely. As we are often wont to do on these shows, we occasionally sit back toward the end of the year and start contemplating what else we could add into our busy schedule of games and ideas. If not for now, then perhaps for later. But, you know, as ideas come, it's useful, one, to get them out of your head by teasing out the details and specifics of them. And sometimes, too, they lead to a bigger, better, more interesting thing than initially you'd conceived of or jotted as a random joke note to a friend on a text one night. And Dave's brother, Stephen, and I often have a running conversation about weird tropes in video games. But we also have a soft spot in our heart for some of the, I guess, what would be considered nowadays old school GRPG games such as Secret of Mana, Terra Enigma, Legend of Zelda, and you know, there are a lot of more modern contemporary iterations of those that we have nowadays. But way back in the day, a lot of these games began the same way. You were just a little know-nothing kid in a village with a stick. And the world around you was, you know, your everyday. And maybe there are a few things fantastic or a bit strange. Until you stumble upon something. The princess in a crystal, sword in a stone. Could be any number of those things. The treatment as I wrote to Stephen then was... I'll read it better this way. This was the original post I sent to Stephen a little while ago. So I've been chewing over this idea for a campaign that begins like a classic JRPG. Think Terra Enigma, where your every day is mundane, the world's a little fantastic. And all you have at first is a stick. And I think part of what caught me on that idea as I was reflecting on it, was that in these games, you began with so little, and you had to learn and discover all the rest all the rest as you went along. It was Zelda, for instance, it was often about the magics you learned, the creatures you unlocked who gave you boons, the items you discovered that you had to use puzzle style to solve issues and challenges in front of you, and that's still persistent throughout the series. Terra Enigma has, I don't know if either of you have ever played it, but it's quite it begins quite simply, you know, kid in the village, go help the farmer out, go deliver goods to the shop and talk to the neighbors, all that basic, really simple stuff. And then you stumble upon a box with a weird critter in it. And then you get told after you open the box that you have to revive the entire world by the village elder. And that seems like a tall order for a kid who's bumbling around a village who opened a box, right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think, oh, is, it, is it Link's Awakening where monsters attack or something and he's given by his master the sword and the shield? Is that classic opening? You must save the princess. Uh, maybe yeah. I w- the way you were describing uh, the terror game, it sounded more like uh, Twilight Princess a little bit. Because in that one, he's a uh, like he starts out as like a farmer and then gets thrust into the dark world or whatever the hell they call it. I never right. beat it. Secret of Mana, the kid, random orphan in a village, raised by the locals, stumbles around beating up little rabbit monsters, literally rabbits. 
and <laughs> gets knocked out, falls off a log, lands in a stream with an old sword and a stone, and then hears a voice and pulls it out, King Arthur style. And a ghost tells him that you must revive the sword and save the world. And he's going, um, what? And then, of course, all these monsters start attacking the villagers exile him because, you know, broke the seal on the sacred sword. Monsters are trying to eat us and you're a horrible kid. You know, and then you stumble outside and goblins try to eat you or boil you alive. I think it depends on what way you go. And actually, come to think of it, that was a neat part of it, too. Depending on which path you take out of the village, you meet different characters. And one option is you get captured by goblins and they try to eat you. So, you know, real hard entry into the world around you. Yeah. Kicking out buddy monsters, yeah. thrashing weeds, and suddenly, okay, I'm dinner, right? And your capacity is minimal. You've got no magic. You've got a stick and now a sword you can beat, you know, beat monsters with that you're really bad at. And that's it. Another element of these games that was pretty common was that things you thought would be basic to your experience in a narrative, trade, sleep, shop, you had to learn to unlock all of those through experience, through quests, through dialogues and the tutorial. A lot of that's been phased out nowadays in most games, but I find like, I feel like there's a certain charm, right? To things that are fundamentally basic being discoverable. The other part of this that I think has been bouncing around in my head for a while is an episode Dave and I did a while back called uh, Mayflies in December, where we plotted out this idea of a world that was standard, as much as you could think of it, all the things that be normal, and maybe a couple weirdnesses, like a village with an old person who might have been, in, you know, might be a magical elf or some other weird creature, but they've been there forever since the village has been around forever. And it's only as you start seeing a few small changes that they start tumbling into huge things that are natural to the world, but new to you as the people in it, because all the generations that have passed among your kind, none of them remember. They're all too short-lived to remember those moments, those changes. I think the big twist was that the night and day cycle of this world were long, centuries long, right? So now night was finally, or it was all night or something like that, and then on day was finally returning. And kind of like, uh, what is it, Iceland or whatever that yeah. has like a weird thing like that? Yeah, and there's extremes of it in the real world, for instance, how when you get close to the Arctic Circle, the seasons are prolonged day and lighter, day and lighter skewed severely. And, okay, now I remember, the, the weird thing about Terra Enigma, and you don't notice it at first until you step out of the village, the sky is full of bubbles. There's no clouds, it's just blue sky and bubbles. Like the Willy Wonka movie? Oh, the, there were the, the giggle bubbles or something you could, yeah, it was, they had an effect on you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were just all the way up in the sky, and there was no answer to why. Or no, there, there was something talking about why the sky was that, that blue and reflected, and it was delivered as if this was just the way the world is, right? And of course- Yeah, it is, yeah. Rather, it is, that's how this part of the world is. I don't want to spoil the game, old as it is. But part of what I've been trying to figure out is how we can create that kind of experience- in a single-player game with a group of players, because all these games, you know, they might have had co-op modes or whatever, people could hop in and join you, but fundamentally it was a single-player narrative. And in a tabletop game, it's a group and collaborative storytelling game. So the thing I've been puzzling over is how do we take that experience and translate it into something where all of you could simultaneously learn about the world and discover the simple basic things and grow from there so that for instance, yeah, learning to cast your first spell is a big thing. Now, you guys began playing tabletop from a very different point of entry, right? Probably. What was yours? What was, honey, you began with what? D&D 4th edition or 5th? Uh, probably one of the first ones I played was D&D uh, 5e. I haven't played any of the other ones. I've played some 
other games with you and other other friends. Mm-hmm. But I think primarily I've played 5e the most. What was that first session like? I had no idea what was going on. I was so confused. <laughs> there was so much going on. Everybody else had played a lot more than I had. Uh-huh. And it was just incredibly confusing. <laughs> so many elements. Yeah, I actually played like my first sessions. I played a couple years before I actually got into D&D because I had a group of friends who were playing a game and I was visiting and I was like, well, can I try? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they let me try. And uh, yeah, I had no idea what was going on. It was great. <laughs> when did you decide in that game that you wanted to continue playing? Um, in that game, I don't know if I honestly did because I did have a couple years break after playing that. But I've when you came back and played your next game. Yeah, after that, I found a group of people who were interested in playing. And uh, I actually DM'd for some friends. And I, you know, actually read the rule book, okay. which was kind of important. Mm-hmm. God, you've done more than me when I did that. <laughs> and then I just sort of started from there. Uh, then turns out I and I've read a ton of D&D based books mm-hmm. when I was a kid right. that I didn't know were D&D until way later. What edition would those have been? I have no idea, honestly. I've read like classic Dragonlands Forgotten Realms books. Oh, okay. This might have been second edition then. Yeah. Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Yeah. But this is like 90s high fantasy books. Yep. That would have been second edition, I guess. Yeah. What was it about that? Those, those stories that drew you in? It was the adventure, like high fancy stuff. It was it was just so different from reality. Also, I was like 11. Mm-hmm. So it was what the library had at the time that interested me. So I just read everything that was available. Was Dragonlance what you read first? Um, I honestly don't remember what... Actually, I do remember what my first books were. Okay. It was by the authors that wrote Dragonlance. So that's Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. But it wasn't Dragonlance. It was their other book series called Deathgate Cycle. Yeah. That was my first like book into that sort of high fantasy world series. Was Deathgate also based on the adventures they ran? I know it's Dragonlance initial ones, the dragons of Autumn Twilight and the rest of them after. Yeah, I don't think Deathgate Cycle was based on any of their games. And it's not as based in D&D mm-hmm. as Dragonlance was. It was more based, like they still had the same like races uh, and they had like similar mechanics, mm-hmm. but it was still, I wouldn't say it was purely D&D based. It wasn't as like one-to-one. More loose interpretation, yeah. Yeah, a looser interpretation for sure. Andrew, what was your entry point? Uh, mine was also like 5e D&D. I think mine, I was definitely a player. I didn't start DMing till like later high school. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I had gotten into like the Lord of the Rings stuff and the higher like traditional higher fantasy stuff around then. Um, and I was like, oh, I'll check out uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I think, oh, what? Uh, this, this is going to this is gonna age me, but I think uh, Not as much as second us. campaign just started. <laughs> <laughs> for a critical role. Oh, man. Oh, a bebe. <laughs> Where's your wean? And I had, I was, I was in high school and 
you, you know how it is. You, you ask friends. Like let, let me let me describe high school D and D for everyone at home and. <laughs> Uh, it it goes it goes like how I imagine some uh games nowadays since COVID have gone, where it's like, uh, did people show up? Maybe. Um, let let's just say most of my games in high school were they they had one session. Yeah, I've and I I was trying. lucky if if we had a second one. <laughs> That's about right. As far as the narrative, the the RPG video games, where where did you guys begin? I love Zelda games. Okay. Uh, they were one of my favorites. I played a lot of Pokemon. I don't know if it counts. I, I yeah, I was gonna say mine would mine would be Pokemon if we're counting. Um, because th- the basic premise there is, regardless of the game, you start with one little critter and have to capture everything, right? Yeah. Unless you want to like like if you want to get more specific, you could also count uh, Final Fantasy three, the DS version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, handheld. Is that the American version of six? No, the actual Japanese. Okay. Uh, right, the, the remaster of the. Oh God, I'm trying to remember what that was even about. It didn't. Uh, I don't think it had a story. <laughs> um, that was like. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like I, I, I've, I've talked. I like I. I I remembered. I I was talking with a friend of mine who's like way more into Final True. Fantasy than uh, uh, I am, and um, it was like Final Fantasy didn't have a proper story till he said like four, I think, with like uh Yeah. It was more of an old school kind of adventure style game with avatars that you've created in a way. Yeah. Where it's like I think three, the DS version was like it, it gave a little I was gonna say it wasn't like one for one for the original three, but it was um gave like names for the characters okay, and stuff Cloud like that. Of Darkness it was just comes from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't remember I don't think I ever played this ball, so I don't remember any of these names. <laughs> okay, Sid, yeah. <laughs> the three three had an airship and you went to the and the first world was like a big island sure. and you went down to the lower world or something. Okay, yeah. They they redid that one in four and five in a more detailed fashion. I think also with a Sid. Yeah. Okay. So we all at least have some kind of origin point in the in the video game. Uh, media two, medium two with old school. What would be considered nowadays, I suppose, old school narrative games. It, I think PS two or PS three now. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> oh my god! Don't don't look at me. All right. I, it, 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 here's the thing. It could be worse. Uh, it, you could be. I had a friend of mine had a roommate in college who had a Dreamcast because apparently Dreamcast is now a fashion thing. Yes. Or like. <laughs> <laughs> like some it's not uh, a hipster thing yeah yeah like one of the high-end clothing brands did a line that were like retro consoles or something and dreamcast was on it jeez i remember years ago when i worked at a summer camp and the kids were on the back of the bus because we dropped them off at the end of the day arguing about video games and one of them started talking about the nintendo system not the snes and i'll never forget the reply of the other going no nintendo's not real it started at snes <laughs> the bus driver and I are in the front going <sighs> just tell them it started with radar equipment where that oh. gets you should just, I, should have, I should have talked to them about Famicom and watched their heads explode <laughs> but yeah the, no I didn't tell them actually them because I was just too it was the first time I am as a 20 something maybe 21 even felt the shift in generations <laughs> it was painful I'm already feeling it. Oh, you poor child. 
So, oh boy, just you wait. <laughs> my question to you then is, what elements of those experiences of beginning tabletop for the first time, of playing those old school JRPGs for the first time, would you want to preserve in a game or in a system where we try to do make an homage to that? What elements stand out to you or things, you know, nostalgic or otherwise, that you would love to experience in a tabletop version? Yeah, like, I, I'm trying to think of, like, something where... If we're shifting this, like, I feel like we need something that isn't, that is DM-less a little bit. Yeah. Like, there, there's something about, like, I, I don't know, like, because, like, even with, like, D&D or, like, you know, even, like, the, the greatest DMs, I think, still have that thing where it's like, okay, the, the DM is clearly, like, leaving footnotes for the players to guide and engage with in order to, like, go down story paths, you know what I mean? I feel like with a JRPG or like any any RPG video game to be honest it's like you have a lot more control and everything like the it, it have to be DMless and it also have to be like everything the player does gets some kind of like reaction out of it a little bit mm-hmm. like cuz even even like just looking around someplace like hell I I mean this isn't a JRPG, but I uh, got into Dragon Age Inquisition over my break, and it's like, oh, it's like, I can, like, I'm looking, I'm, even though there isn't anything there, it's like, I'm still expanding the map. Because there's a possibility you'll find a point of interest that you want to engage with. Exactly, yeah. Like, it's something where it's like, okay, like, I'm going over there, and I expand the the map, like, I mean, it wouldn't have a UI since we're going to Tabletop, but... I'm expanding the map UI to see that, oh, there's a landmark there that I can go check out later or go check out now. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's, I feel like the, the the game needs that some kind of control a little bit. So, in a sense, similar to you, I think how when we were doing the playtest of Wanderhome, that mm-hmm. the world itself generates as we play. Exactly, yeah. And I think so. Likewise, that there's a collaborative where instead of having someone guide the narrative, it's a group of characters together uncovering the truth of the situation around them rather than having someone try to shepherd that narrative in a sense right yeah that the way to get to true supplies and to emulate that sense of us being in an un, in a surrounded by unknowns is for us all to be in that same experience of it without someone else having a hand further above yeah kind of kind of like um like a dm who improvises stuff right <laughs> that yeah. totally isn't me <laughs> <laughs> everything's an improvisation so if a character says they see something in the distance, it's in the distance. It, it, yeah, it's it's like that uh that that I, I was gonna say, I don't know if like I, I've heard like some people like starting out D D will do that where it's like, oh, I look over there and I see big beautiful castle off in the distance or something. Yeah, it is interesting how the system can after too much experience start to narrow your decision points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After you know I thought another cool element could be just every start of the session everybody would write down something and they could just go into a pot and like once or twice during the session you'd pull something out of the pot and that thing would happen whatever it is it could be a thing or an event or a place or something that'd be a good idea yeah yeah and then it would just the amount of those random things would just increase because you'd only pick like one or two Okay, yeah, so you keep growing the pot. Exactly. 
And so it would become more randomized and you would forget what you put in there yourself. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it would something that you put in during sessions one, you could pull in session 20 and it would co totally derail what's going on, which would be pretty neat. As would often happen. Yes. We got an airship. It gets eaten. <laughs> we got a boat. It says. We got a Kraken. It gets eaten. <laughs> Actually, that'd be the funny thing of every time. Everything gets eaten. No, no, yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, I, I could see it working where it's like you, you build up this pot over, over the game and it's like, you, you know, it's like you're getting to the final act and it's just like, oh, the big bad guy, he gets eaten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have to fight the thing that eats him. <laughs> it's even worse than the bad guy. Yeah. This is uh, two things I'd, I'd love to throw into the mix here. So one of them is that there's always the moment of unexpected. And I was talking to Dave the other day and I said, this just came to me, but I imagine there's always that one weird quest. You wonder where it's going. And you know, maybe you need a boat to cross a river, right? It's that simple. You, you got to cross this big river. You don't have a boat. There's a guy on house with a boat who's not going to give you the boat for free because it's his boat. He wants a thing out of you. Maybe the thing is killing the smear bites that are eating his cabbage or something. And, and it's this whole, you know, shaggy dog string of story of quest he sends you on before he'll give you the boat. And then he finally goes, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll take you downstairs and you know, you go down to the basement and it's a longer way than you think. And you get down and he turns the light on and it's a spaceship. There's always an, there's always an element in, in the old JRPGs where you think you know the world you're in. And then there's a little twist or a big one that tilts your entire understanding of it. And I think that's partly the random encounter. It's also partly to the, this is an idea Dave and I were playing with on the Legends and Lore episode, that there are, you know, in an old world or a world full of wonder, there are things that are legendary that either have stories about them or stories waiting yet to be told. And when we were talking yesterday, he threw out as a suggestion using something like the ruin track in Apocalypse Keys, but instead of it being to your ultimate devastation that you become a monstrosity that has to be defeated by the players, your legend becomes you. Whatever stories or things are attributed to you become more than you. And so as I was uh, playing with this, I figured there's actually kind of a neat set of systems we could add to this game where as you adventure, certain things would increase that legend track further, maybe acquiring the legendary item, maybe getting the old man's spaceship that turns, you know, the boat that turns out to be a spaceship, things like that. Maybe not even getting them, but what you do with them that increase the legend track. And this also borrows a system from the, the masks game. Because in that game, it's all about being young superheroes and having adults tell you what to do and arguing with them about it, including the villains. So you have abilities, and then depending on how convincing the villains are or other adults are about what your roles are and capabilities are, your abilities change. And I thought it would be kind of neat if as you adventure and travel further and gain more capacities, the tales about you can reach a point where to an extent they eclipse you. You arrive in a new place, and they've heard things about you that may or not be true. And those proofs might budge your abilities a bit this way or that, change your appearance a little this way and that. And the challenge becomes, how do you be a hero, achieve legendary feats, but still retain that everyday person you were at the beginning of the game? And maybe you do, maybe you don't. That becomes a challenge you know, to play in the game. But I think one of the things that both of us liked about that system in the Ruin System Apocalypse Keys is that it gives another way to increase the capacity but at a cost you choose to engage with, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you're you're talking like 
the the more you do, it kind of comes at a cost later or an unknown cost right. kind of thing. One of the things he loved about Dresden Files was that the more powerful you were, the more limited your choices were. Yeah. So the greatest figures, the vampires, the fae, all of them were deeply constrained by what they had to do or were known to do. And part of what made the everyday people heroes was that they were free to do anything. So I liked that tension as part of the system there. You know, moves that would allow you to push-pull each other on that. You know, there's the reveal your heart moving keys that allows people to undo ruin. There's, I, w- I would want something similar that allows you to kind of humble another character or maybe allow them to self-aggrandize and then you know, up their legend or something like that. So I think that's a good touch point on systems. What about the tone or the spirit of the f- or the feel of it, right? That, but I know there's the visuals and the music that might be harder to capture on tabletop. But let's talk less about the system and more about like the the heart, the the emotional experience you have when you play these games. What endeared those experiences to you? When did you care? For like JRPG style stuff, it's like the whimsy and just having. Like, even if stakes were high, it would still have, like, the childish feeling of hope mm-hmm. in the game, which is a very big contrast to our usual games, which are just <laughs> everything is horrible. <laughs> so I do think for a game like this, there should be, like, a level of, like, whimsy and hopefulness instead of just dread and terror. <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about, Ani. My my games are full of whimsy and wonder, and no, no violence happens ever. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> who, who committed the first murder in the Wander Home game? <laughs> we don't speak of things. Is it technically murder? It wasn't technically a person. <laughs> I'm leaving this Technically. <laughs> I don't know if you've, either of you have ever played Chrono Trigger. I have not. It's on my list. I won't spoil much for them, but there's a character who is aptly named Frog. <laughs> and it sounds like a joke character, but he's a, he's the most serious, noble character. He's got a very, you know, important knightly theme. He just happens to be a, a very noble character cursed to be a frog. And you think that would make him a joke character, but not only is he one of the more powerful characters, but he's so he's so sincere despite his silliness. And yeah, it does add that element of Okay, I shouldn't believe this character, but I do. Yeah. And yeah, I, go ahead. I, I think there's, so there's that element of hope, whimsy, and charm, right? I, I Yeah, I was going to, my, my thought was, it's kind of, I'll, I'll say it's kind of a piggyback, because I, I feel like with all JRPGs, like even like some of the grimmer ones, there's always like a weird sense of innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, a, a thought that came to mind is like, um, like a persona like specifically five where it's like they're they're kids like stopping bad guys if you really think about it like mm-hmm. the, the 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 adults are doing crappy horrible shit and they're just you know they're kids that are trying to do what they've been taught is right and all that shit um like i i always like i'm thinking about all the other examples and it's like there's a weird sense of like innocence to the world like even if a world isn't whimsical or like super magical there's always like a basic like innocent idea of like to do good like uh uh, final fantasy 7 where it's like uh oh big corporation is sucking the planet uh dry we gotta blow up the thing that's causing that (laughs) like like i i think an adult would probably be like oh that's 
a little weird, you know. Um, it's interesting you bring that game up because I think the original versus the remake have such different tonalities. Yeah, like actually, that that is a good point. Yeah, because like I'm I'm thinking of the original where it's just like, oh, we're gonna blow up a factory. <laughs> That's not terrorism or anything. No, whereas. Uh, I don't know if you've played the remake the whole way, but when you get up to the tower at the very end, there's two paths you can go in both games. You can either walk it, hoof it, or, you know, 50-some floors. I think I, I don't remember where I got in the remake. <laughs> I was so tired of that game. Or you can take the elevator. And it was really fascinating because if you take the elevator in the remake, you have to kill two guards. And after you do, Tifa looks at you and goes, we have to do this? It's a bit on the nose, but there, there had to have been another way, right? And she's been that part of her narrative arc, that whole thing is I, I get that we're saving the planet, but what's you know, what is our cost that we're accepting on this and why do we keep moving the marker on that? And it becomes one of the moral quandaries of the game. Whereas in I'd say in the original, yeah, to a certain point it's kind of papered over by the severe cosmic villainy of the of the opposition. You know, what does it matter the cost of saving the planet when the villain wants to wipe it out anyway? Exactly, yeah. Like, it, I, I'd even argue that's also another thing with JRPGs is that a lot of, you know, a lot of them have that kind of, like, cosmic evil in a way. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, we, we, we want to destroy everything for the sake of, you know, whatever we want. Wasn't, to your point, Final Fantasy III one of those games where it, you get to the end and suddenly you beat the villain who's, you know, an evil king or some other thing, and then... A jar pops open and a big cloud pops up and goes, blog, I am the cloud of darkness, defeat me. And you're going, uh, I, I only recall through references. But yeah, there there was a stretch of those games where, you know, or Kirby, uh, which is the Kirby where there's the, the Dark Knight or something. You know, it takes a really weird dark turn at the very end. Oh, uh, are you talking about Mars? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Superstar Ultra. Okay. Yeah, there were occasionally... I think by the time you got Earthbound, which was a meta commentary on old school JRPGs, and you know if you haven't played that, it do it's a hallmark for this the genre. The music is incredible. The game is also at some points deeply insufferable mechanically. <laughs> I, I, I will I will work on that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't played play it either. at some point. <laughs> it's actually I can't say to play it on emulator because you shouldn't. You should provide to the people who created it as best you can. But the reason I bring up the emulator situation is that there's one mechanic in the game, hit points roll when you take damage, and there's one area where you have very limited resources and trees explode when you kill them and always do far more damage than you have hit points. So depending on the frame rate of the system you're playing it on, you just die each fight unless you raise a bunch of chickens into egg or eggs into chickens and sell them for exploding teddy bears that take the damage instead of you or you save state an emulator or you lower the frame rate in your device. Actually, yeah, I think the legitimate way to play it now is um, the classic, yeah. N- uh, Nintendo has, like, uh, if you, yeah. Well, I mean, you don't need Plus, but if you just get the online, it has, like, the SNES library. If you don't want to pay any of that, go watch people play a Let's Play Online. It gives you enough of the same feeling. Yeah. I think it's a great system to exemplify some of the times where the system gets in the way of the fun. Where I quit that game twice at that same place, because... It was a kind of a weird, neat, hopeful game, and then the system just went, nope, trees explode, you die. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it kind of spoiled my fun. And how many of you guys, have, how many of you, have, of you have played a version of an open world RPG where you can wander into places you probably shouldn't? 
definitely. And do you try to take it on anyway? Obviously. Yeah, yeah. I just, hell, I, I played one the, this past week. <laughs> Where did you go? Because I, I, wa- I, I didn't want to fight the dragon. I wanted to get all the <laughs> landmarks. But the game said, no, you have to. Did you find the I did the exact same thing in Inquisition. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, I'll just I'll just sneak while my party deals with it. It's fine. Nope. Burning. Just all burning. Yeah. And it, it behooves you at that point just to deal with it as bad as you are because it in, it inhibits so many other things you'd want to do in that area. And I know part of that is the game design. They're putting these things in front of you to make you take to to force a choice upon you. Actually, I guess this is a, a good thing to bring up as a system that kind of splits a lot of players' tabletop and console like the unbeatable point. One where you can't win. What are you guys' thoughts on those? Yeah, I think unbeatable fights are definitely interesting as long as the solution is something worthwhile. A TPK is boring. Like, Mm -hmm. if everybody dies, the game ends. There should be some consequences, but there should be something else that happens that is not just wiping the whole party clean. Andrew? I'm kind of the same. I feel like you could make a... TPK work in a way. I I'm, I'm trying to think how though, because it, it would work more. I feel like in console a little bit than a tabletop, because it's like if you TPK like that, that's kind of gonna make or break some people a little bit. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a spoiler for Kingdom Hearts three, but the game's been out long enough at this point. The game has a weird pacing where you think when you reach the end that you're only halfway through it, because the prior games you always run through everything twice and. Kingdom Hearts 3, you only run through everything once. And I figured, okay, great. Big, you know, midpoint conflict, and then we're going to do another loop at the big boss, have a, you know, a thing, and oh, we're at the final stage. But right before there, they pulled something I didn't think they would do. Killed everyone. And I, this is a Disney game. You know, that's not going to last. As dark as Disney can get. They, they need a sequel. Don't end a Disney narrative by killing everyone. <laughs> That too, but they need a sequel. (laughs) Why you don't kill a narrative by killing everyone. So, importantly, Sora dies, and you know, in that system that metaphysic hearts separate from bodies and everything. And there's this whole fading out sequence and everything, and then this really beautiful music starts playing. And you arrive in this strange world that's kind of mirror-like and everything. And as the game always does, after a certain amount of music and cinematic plays, there's a title drop on the name of the world. And sometimes, you know, it's a Disney property. Sometimes it's a game original location. Do you know what the name after the music plays? Do you know what the name of this particular world is? No. The final world. Oh, boy. You are literally in the afterlife where all hearts go after losing their bodies. And you have to put yourself back together long enough to fight the final fight. And I sat there and went, okay, yeah, I knew Sorrow wasn't going to die, but whoa. This is trippy (laughs) and ouch. Because the first thing you do is encounter ghosts from the previous games who are still stuck there and have not moved on. And it was, a yeah. to your point, yeah, you could simply just end the characters and have that be, well, congratulations, we've completed the prologue. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one interesting yeah. twist of, oh God, really? What the hell? Mm-hmm. And then, okay, great, let's roll up and uh, 500 years later, we continue. You know, you could do that. You could see what the afterlife in this setting is. And maybe it's a matter of escaping that. I don't know why, but that gave me an idea to try at one point. You have you have you have a group of players make two characters, and then when when you do the prologue session, you have them flip a coin and say, "Okay, heads or tails, which character do you want to play first? 
and then you TPK the party. <laughs> and then the, the players have to play the other character. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're aiming for Hope Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> can express an idea. I'm not saying no. I'm just <laughs> remarking on the valence of yours. <laughs> I can be hopeful. Not everything has to be grim dark. You know, it's terrible that I'm the one calling him on that. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I've been watching. I watched too much Witcher. <laughs> this, is, this is why, Andrew. Witcher has poisoned your mind. You need, you drink the wrong brews. <laughs> I, I blame Asterion from Baldur's Gate. That's one. <laughs> okay, how many times have you killed him now? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we counting just stakes or the the sun way the 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 sun laser beam? Do you engage the romance conversation just to stake him? <laughs> I still haven't played that game, guys. <laughs> okay, okay, no spoilers. So, what I'd like to do now before we dive into a little bit of a playtest to toy around with or to poke around with some of these concepts is do what you know we usually don't in these games nowadays. Find a starting point that's the village, that's the inn, that's the the homey everyday where things are normal. And uh, before I we go into the details of that. One of the things that Dave and I talked about in the uh, Mayfly December game was the arc of the narrative. This was, mind you, for, you know, if someone was GMing or crafting the narrative for a single player experience, where the whole first arc of it is mostly the everyday with a few odd changes every now and then, and then the big reveal dramatically at the end. I think uh, in that one, the harvests were going weird, light was starting to shift, colors were looking a little different, you know, as happens during change of seasons and day. And things were starting to emerge that only ever lived underground. And eventually we find out that goblins or some other critter were raiding the fields and you try to fend them off. And, you know, maybe there's some mid, mid-narrative conflict there. But the end of that first arc would be them running, a horde of them emerging and just swarming over your town. And you knew they were coming, you prepared your fortifications, you try to fight them off. And it's only at the very end of that warm pouring over your town that you see why they're running. And it's this huge, just the first dragon coming out of the soil in its long sleep, hungry as can be after centuries of hibernation, having eaten through the war and has burrowed itself back to the surface, and now looking for what's next. So all of this conflict with Things changing with the weather changing, with the light changing, with things starting to steal your resources. All of that driven by something that's just awakened out of hibernation. And that itself is only symptomatic of a greater change in the world itself. So that was the end of our act one there. So when I talk about our everyday or kind of the homey village or the the beginning experience, the two beats I'd kind of like us to play with are one that it should feel every day, and that it's okay for there to be a few things that are strange. So in the Seeding the threads process. Let's let's start with uh, Annie or Andrew. Which of you would like to go first? Okay, and lay out a truth for either the village or the world. Something that's everyday or something that's just a little bit strange. Well, I think if we're going to witness the true essence of these first-person JRPG type games, is there needs to be someone who's mute, who cannot talk, because. There is always a character who never says a thing. It doesn't have to be a player character. It can be someone in the town. Can, can, we, can we name him you, as in Y-U? 
they can absolutely be named you. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think they actually should be the, the standard player avatar in all of those games. There's not a character that you play. It's just there in the world. Exactly. Okay. That, is that a strange thing or an everyday thing in this world? I think it's an everyday thing. I think every town you go to, there's at least one person who is like that. There, there's a weirdo in a town. Every, every yeah. town has a protagonist that just never becomes one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Every every town is their silent weirdo. It's the it's just as common as the drunk. Okay. I like that. Yep. Andrew, magic is strange and rare. Okay. Do you want to elaborate? In in yeah. a in a sense of like, well, I. Hmm, I, I you don't, okay, all I'll ask you is, was it always that way? No. Okay. Magic is strange and rare, but wasn't always. Yes. Okay, that's fine. I I, 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 I feel like, like, um, if we're talking, like, we're going, like, the, the village kind of thing, it's like, you know, maybe, maybe have less of the fantastical stuff that you would see in, like, uh, Final Fantasy, where it's like, oh, not every shop has, uh, or not every town has, like, the... A guy who uh, practices black magic. Mm-hmm. But there's no magic shop like an FF1 where you're going to buy your flare too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that that's that's what I was thinking of. Is like we do that, but we have it different in a sense where it's like not every shop will have the flare two guy or um, the healing cleric. Right. Okay. So for you to use an analog and say D and D or Pathfinder or any of those style of games. At will magic is in and of itself a rarity. Even small things like summoning light, conjuring little flames, or things like that. Let's say yes, yeah. Let's see. So we're doing every day this round. What's the everyday thing I want to contribute? Does it involve a body part and an alcoholic beverage? <laughs> oh no, stop it. Not again. Andrew. <laughs> Don't look at me. You made that a quiet year. Punish you. I think... The village elder always finds a reason to be angry or annoyed with you. With me or everybody? With the, with the players. <laughs> or with, with the, you. With the party. <laughs> or, or hilariously also oh, with... God. Hilariously also with you, the character. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's talk about things that are a little fantastic. Ani? I think in the forests that map this world... There are always some deeper pockets of darkness where there is a spark of magic. Finding them might be incredibly difficult, but everybody knows it's there on some level. Magic lies in hidden places that you have to seek. In liminal spaces. Okay, I like that. Essentially. Andrew? I think, I I don't want to say like super rare, but like a decently like fantastical kind of way is that You'll see, uh, I, I guess I, we'll say bigger animals like the it going off of like D and D with like all the dire and like giant monsters. You'll occasionally see something like a dire wolf. Like I, I don't want to say it's as rare as like magic, but it's more common. Andrew, are there shiny monsters? <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to ride a giant otter. <laughs> Do you want to ride a giant otter or a giant avatar penguin otter? <laughs> well, if you give me that choice. <laughs> okay. So what what about what about one that has a big trident on its face and is also made of metal? We're not porting Pokemon. <laughs> I didn't say we were now. Okay. I think to your point <laughs> but though. But hear me out. <laughs> I think to your point though, there are critters and the critters are unique in a way that 
occasionally gets a little strange. It, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking of. Yeah, like I don't, I don't want to go full Avatar Pokemon here, but they're like you'll you'll see you'll see a wolf, and then a week goes by, and someone shouts, "Oh, there's a big wolf!" Right, and you're thinking, you know, five five inches longer or something, and it's oh no, it's a Mononoke wolf. <laughs> and it's got a sword in its mouth. What the hell? <laughs> Why are we playing Okami? <laughs> a, a Dark Souls also works, but yes. Can I play the wolf? Not a playbook. <laughs> okay. I think for the last bit of fantastic here, there are items of legend, but they're mostly powerless. So going off of your, your notion of things of liminal spaces or magic residing in liminal spaces, there's ways to keep magic here. Store it in a thing, but even that too fades. So a bag of holding goes from holding to bag of deep pockets. Something like that. Not even that specific necessarily, but you know, that you can find something that could be a vessel for more, but isn't now, right? Oh, okay. If you want it, you know, Master Sword style or something like that. If you want it to be awesome, you've got to put work into it. Mm -hmm. Or you can just enjoy it being a small thing that's interestingly magical. Like, yeah. The fact that your your thief character or your your sneaky character always now has pocket space for anything, and that's just a thing about them that's true now. Extra pockets, and that's a wonderful thing to now occur. To you know, th- that's that's a big boon. It's not like oh, cool, great. Uh, where in my inventory do I put that? And you know, I'm not to thumb my nose at BG three or the new games, but a lot of these newer to encourage reward and exploration. You get a lot of treasure and loot. And as you guys know, I don't like Christmas tree adventures and stories where you come out at the other end of it needing to be plugged and unplugged for someone so someone can look at you without all the bling blowing their brains out. And I think it's more interesting to gain unique boons or qualities or traits or things that change fundamentally or weird, unusual items that you have to think about uses for. Did either of you see the television show The Magicians? I've seen some of it. So one of the big, not to spoil much, but one of the big questions is the main character, Quinton, what his magic specialty is, because no one can figure it out. And he goes through a severe identity crisis because he can't identify it and all his friends are awesome or magic or, you know, are incredible at a thing that is understandable and graspable. And he cannot for the life of him figure it out. And when he finally does, it fits him because it's useless most of the time. Yeah, I didn't read the third book. Because Quentin was the most obnoxious character ever written. So I just couldn't do it. The book series is, um, it becomes intolerable. The, the television show, I think, does a much better job. And I, I think it goes a lot to the writers, the cast, and the sound direction, honestly. Because they're fantastic musicians, too. So the fact that they'll break out into Whitesnake to narrate themselves through a sec- section works. And it really shouldn't. But it does because they carry it. But the reason I bring it up is that his... One thing he's great at is so small and mundane, and in his mind useless until it becomes of the utmost importance. And it's the last big heroic thing he does in that narrative part of the story. So I think there's a place for the small wonders too, right? Not everything has to be a sort of legend mm-hmm. or a power glove or, you know, some big artifact. But yeah, that maybe importantly, going off of kind of that system of the legendary being too much for the world, it's easier for small magic to stay than big magic. So legendary items, feats of wonder, all that stuff fades quickly. But the small little strange things, like your your extra deep pockets, somehow still remain. That's my quirk to the 
slowly fantastic there. It's like your grandma has a spatula that if it's in a pot, the pot never like boils over. Mm-hmm. Right. Or no matter how many times, this is, I think, a lot of the GRPGs, there's always a thing that has food that you can get back to or a resource that never runs out. It'd be a beehive that's always full of honey, grandma's stew. The fact that your dad always sends you money. <laughs> no matter where you're at and that there's always a payphone you can call him on, you know, on Earthbound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and importantly, that system homesick is a is a system is a, a condition that can occur to you if you don't talk to your parents enough because you're a kid. So it helps kind of build that immersion, you know, and that he talks to you, your homesickness goes away, sends you some money, asks if you want to go to take a nap because you sound really tired and exhausted. All those kind of immersion building elements that I think the everyday helps reinforce. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.